All right, if you would remain standing for just a moment, we only have two verses to read. Romans chapter 12, and the first two verses. Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Dear Father, we praise you this morning for the magnitude and for the multitude of your mercies toward us in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would make clear to us the assignment you've given us to present ourselves to you as sacrifices submitted to your eternal purposes alone. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I want to ask you to think for a moment about how you typically approach a risky proposition. Most of us find that we need to be reasonably convinced that the likelihood of benefit outweighs the likelihood of failure before we're willing to jump into something that looks risky. Now, there are some exceptions to that approach. (laughs) But for most of us, the process of uh, carefully examining and approving a proposal, a course of action at the front end is indispensable. And we want to do that before we've risked anything at all. If you have ever dealt with investments, you know that smart investors do a careful analysis and they, they make sure that, uh, that those who know something about that investment have pretty high level of confidence in it. And then, Investors tend to spread the risk around. They don't put all their eggs in one basket. Um, And that approach serves us pretty well, doesn't it? But what if someone told you, no, what if someone urgently demanded of you that you lay on the line all of your time, your money, your possessions, your life, even the well-being of your family. Everything, without exception. And what if all conventional wisdom, everything that tends to guide those that the world looks to as prudent and successful, told you that that course of action really wasn't very wise at all? What if everything that your eyes, your physical eyes could see, told you that... uh, The risks involved in this proposition were outlandish. And then what if the person who was making this demand of you also told you that you should just forget about trying to prove the the quality or viability of the proposition until after you were irreversibly committed to it? How would you respond to a proposition that was presented on those terms? Well, if it was presented to you by a mere mortal such as yourself, then I would hope that you would politely say no and and go somewhere else quickly. 
But I believe this is a pretty fair description of what God through Paul is strongly exhorting of us in these two verses that we're going to look at this morning. He is urging us to invest ourselves in the will and the way of God and to do so with everything that we are and with everything that we have. Withholding nothing. And he's telling us that only after we have done so will we come to truly know and be convinced of the surpassing value of that investment. But because it's the one who created and redeemed us that is making this demand of us, the greatest foolishness of all would be to turn away from this demand and to say no. And the greatest wisdom of all is for us to say, here I am, Lord. You already bought me. You've already proven to me the quality of your mercy. There's a lot I don't know about this proposition and don't understand, but I'm willing to trust you with it because I'm yours. Here's where we're going this morning. In verse 1, Paul lays out God's exhortation to us to become living sacrifices to Him. And he explains to us the basis of that call to sacrifice, which is the mercies of God. And then he explains the pattern for the sacrifice, which is that we're to lay our whole self on God's altar. And then in verse 2, he tells us, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. First we'll look at what we leave behind, and then we'll look at what we take on. And then we'll examine what Paul presents as the means of this transformation, the renewing of the mind. And finally, the goal of our transformation, that we may prove that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. First, Romans 12, verse 1, living sacrifices to God. Paul begins the first verse with the phrase, I urge you. This is an insistent urging. It's an impassioned appeal. If you look at Luke chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 8, verses 41 and 42, a man named Jairus comes to Jesus and he falls down at his feet and he entreats him to come to his house. And he says that he, it says that he had only one daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. It's an impassioned appeal. You'll find this word used many, many times in the Gospels when people are coming to Jesus Christ and appealing to Him for healing for deliverance from demons, for many things. Where the word is used of the apostles speaking to others, the connotation is an authoritative and emphatic appeal or exhortation. Paul says, I urge you therefore, and the word therefore, of course, points backward to things that Paul has already said. He says, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God. And when I started looking at that word, mercies, uh, I found some pretty interesting things. 
If you take the Greek translation of the Old Testament along with the New Testament, you find that word 30 times. And only four times does it occur in the singular. All the rest of the time it's plural. The mercies of God. When God is the subject. And there's two verses, passages I looked at, Psalm 51.1 and Psalm 68.17, where the American Standard Version, King James Version, both translate this phrase that says, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. The multitude of thy tender mercies. See, it's not just that God's mercy is big. It's that, it's that God's mercies are abundant in number. That is, they are manifested in a multitude of ways. So what are the mercies of God to which Paul is referring? Well, I believe, as do many, that he's talking about all of the miraculous blessings of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ that he's laid out since the beginning of this epistle. Everything that he's had to say in the first 11 chapters. See, we, you and I, just like all mankind, have fallen short of the glory of God. And apart from Christ, we stand eternally condemned just like everybody else. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. But then in the verses that follow 3.20, we find out that in Christ, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has redeemed us from slavery to sin. Jesus paid once and for all the eternal penalty of our sin. And then in chapter 4, Paul says that God has imputed to us a righteousness that's not our own. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that He's done so not through our works, but through faith. And he explains that it is on the basis of His righteousness only imputed to us as a gift that God has forever justified us. He has taken that which was unholy and He has made it holy. He's declared us righteous in His sight. In Romans 5, we find that He did all of this. He demonstrated His perfect love toward us while we were helpless, while we were enemies, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners. And now, having been justified, we have peace with God. We stand reconciled to God. We who were formerly not pleasing to God have been made pleasing to God. And now that we stand in His grace, we exult in the hope of the glory of God and we have His assurance as believers that even the tribulations that we face in this life will result in eternal good. And they'll bring to us a hope that never disappoints. Romans 5, 1-11. through 11. Then Romans 6. We have been buried with Christ in the likeness of His death and we have been raised with Him to newness of life in the likeness of His resurrection. So we who were dead have been made alive. Alive, holy, and pleasing to God. Not by what we have done, but by what He has done. Romans 7, verse 1 through 8, 17, we find out that His indwelling Holy Spirit now gives us victory 
over the desires of the flesh and confirms that we are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then in chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, we're told that we now look forward to the day when we will fully enter into the freedom of the glory of God. And not only we, but all of creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption because of our glorification. And then we find that His Holy Spirit intercedes in our prayers to render them perfect before God. And God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And that calling has existed from before we ever existed. In Romans 9-11, through this marvelous plan of redemption applies not only to Gentiles, but to Jews. And God is using the redemption of Gentiles to provoke Jews to jealousy so that in the fullness of the time, He will bring about the national salvation of Israel. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unfathomable are His ways. Beloved, those are the mercies of God. And Paul tells us that in the light of His abundant and tender mercies toward us in Jesus Christ, knowing that He has made us alive and holy and pleasing in His sight. Our reasonable service is to lay ourselves on His altar. The word for reasonable here is from a Greek word logikos, and we get the word logical from that word. And some commentators point to very limited support outside the Bible for the use of this term to mean spiritual rather than logical. But there's another word for spiritual that Paul uses many, many times in many passages. Here he chooses a word that's used only twice in the New Testament. And in its usage in other Greek documents, it most often has the connotation of reasonable or logical. And so that's the way I take it. I believe his point is very straightforward. In light of what he has already declared for the last 11 chapters regarding the mercies of God, it is eminently reasonable for us as believers to submit ourselves entirely to God's purposes without reservation. It is our reasonable service of worship. Even though our physical eyes and all of the world's sensibilities argue forcefully against doing what he's what he's exhorting us to do here. Paul says the only really truly reasonable thing for the redeemed of God to do is this. See, the world seeks to submit God to human reason, right? And they say, okay, God, if what you're proposing doesn't measure up to the way I tend to see things, then I reject it. But we who belong to Christ readily submit our reason to the Word of God. 
We let Him tell us what's reasonable, right? Alright, so the basis for the sacrifice is the mercies of God and the pattern for the sacrifice is your whole self on God's altar. I want to look for a moment at the language that's used in verse 1 because it's the language of Old Testament sacrifice. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. That very last word, service, again, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used countless times in reference to the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And the idea of presenting one's body, very much an Old Testament concept. The vivid imagery of sacrifice needs to be understood in order for us to get the the color version, the full version of what Paul is exhorting us to do here. And as we'll shortly see, the wording he uses is especially tied to one major category of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now, In case you think I'm going to spend the whole rest of the hour talking about Old Testament stuff, don't worry, I only have four slides on this. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the major categories of the offerings and sacrifices under the law of Moses. There are three big categories. The whole burnt offering, and by the way, these I'm showing these right now based on the order in which they are explained or laid out in Leviticus starting in Leviticus chapter 1. First is the whole burnt offerings. And those are usually presented with grain offerings and drink offerings. And so the grain offering is actually kind of a subset of the, of the whole burnt offering. And the second big category is the peace offerings. Leviticus 3. And the third category is sin and guilt offerings. Now, You'll see there's two, there's a line in the middle there, and the first two are in one category, and the last grouping is in another category. The first category is what is called the soothing aroma offerings. Over 36 times in the Pentateuch, over 36 times in the first five books of the Bible, the whole burnt offering and the peace offerings are referred to as soothing aroma in the nostrils of God. Only once does the phrase soothing aroma show up in a passage that's talking about the sin offering, and it's right after the peace offering has been mentioned. So the notion of soothing aroma is a powerful idea that has to do with pleasantness, the pleasantness of the offering in the nostrils of God. The second category under the line there is offerings for expiation or payment. Expiation is simply the removal of guilt by means of a payment. And the sin and guilt offerings fall into that second category. Now one of the uh, greatest... Well, let me first talk about the significance of these categories. Okay, the whole burnt offerings, the idea behind the whole burnt offerings... There's a strong element of atonement in the whole burnt offerings, but it's not atonement for specific sins or impurities. The thing that really sets the whole burnt offering apart is that it is a picture of the dedication of the whole self to God. It is the one sacrifice in which 
The only one who consumes any of it is God, and he consumes all of it. Okay? In the case of the other categories, the peace offerings and the sin and guilt offerings, there's some people who get to consume parts of the offerings. With the sin and guilt offering, God consumes part, the best part, and the priests consume part. With the peace offerings, which are a celebration of fellowship with God, Everybody gets some. God consumes the best, the priests get a portion, and the offerer and his family get a portion. And it's a sit-down dinner with God, celebrating the condition of fellowship. So you've got a whole burnt offering, which pictures dedication of the whole self, and the grain offering pictures dedication of one's possessions. And then you've got the peace offerings, which is our celebration of fellowship with God, and you've got sin and guilt offerings, which are a picture of the payment for sin. By the way, a payment provided by God, not by men to God. Leviticus 17.11, I, God, have provided the blood to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. All right, so does that, does that slide make sense? Three basic categories and the significance of each. Now, one of the greatest aha moments for me when I was in seminary came one day when my favorite professor, Dr. Ross, invited a very esteemed professor from Tel Aviv University in Israel to come and make a presentation to us while he was here for a conference. And he came and he talked to a group of us Old Testament students. Now, Dr. Rainey, for several decades, was one of the most respected professors in the whole world in the fields of ancient Near Eastern languages, history, culture, and geography. He also was an archaeologist. He was busy. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of the Hebrew Old Testament with a focus on the Pentateuch. It was almost 30 years ago that Dr. Rennie spoke with us. He passed away two years ago. But I remember his words today as if he had just spoken them. It was like a light bulb turned on super bright when I heard what he had to say. He explained that in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, when the sacrifices are laid out, they're not laid out with any explanation of the order in which they are to be presented. They're just simply laid out like a textbook of details to the priests and to the people about how the how each specific sacrifice was to be handled. But when you get to Leviticus chapter 7, the day when the priests were first consecrated, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 8, when the priests were first consecrated and the sacrifices were actually presented on the altar, there's a very specific order in which they were presented. And here's that order. First, the sin and guilt offering was presented. Second, the whole burnt offering. And third, the peace offering. In Numbers chapter 6, or by the way, in the next chapter, Leviticus chapter 9, when the first round of regular sacrifices was presented, first for the high priest himself, and then for the people of Israel, that exact same order is repeated. And you go to Numbers chapter 6 when it talks about the sacrifices that a Nazarite brings at the end of this period of separation unto God. And it's very interesting in that passage because first it says that he hands over the animals to the priests in a particular order which is 
The, um, the first the burnt offering, then the peace offerings, then the sin offering. But when the priest takes those animals and actually offers them up, he does it in this order. In every single passage in which the order of presentation is laid out, this is the order. Okay, so what? <laughs> Why is that order important? Well, it's an amazing picture of the way of access to God, of how we get from being dead in our sins to being in a condition of fellowship with God. First, payment has to be made. There has to be a provision by God to pay for the guilt of our sins. And that's pictured in the sin and guilt offering. And secondly, on the basis of the fact that that payment has been made and that we now stand acceptable in the sight of God, we dedicate ourselves to Him. We lay ourselves on His altar. In the whole burnt offering, Leviticus 1, the offerer puts his hands on the head of the animal and he signifies by that his identification with that animal. And then the priest takes that animal and slays it and he lays that entire animal on the altar to go up and smoke to God as a soothing aroma before God. Made soothing by God. And then, after the dedication offering has been presented, there is a celebration of a condition of fellowship with God. And that's the peace offering. And that's the sit-down dinner with God where even the offerer gets to consume some of the sacrifice. I don't know about you, but that is cool to me. You know what? Dr. Rainey converted to Judaism in 1980. And as far as I know, when he died, he was not a Christian. But God sure used him to tell me something I needed to hear. And it shows me, you know, one of the things that I get so excited about is the unity of Scripture and the fact that both, that from cover to cover, the Bible talks about Jesus Christ. This is one of those, uh, one of those vivid, tangible pictures of this way of access that God has provided in Christ. See, the death of Christ alone was the perfect once and for all sin and guilt offering. It paid the penalty, the eternal penalty that was due to us. And now that that perfect atonement has been accomplished and we stand justified in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the life that we have received belongs to God. All of it. Every bit of it. And so He calls us to lay ourselves on His altar and to be fully at His disposal. At His disposal. And through that willing submission to God, that dedication of our whole self to God, we enter into perfection of fellowship with God. And to the extent that we withhold any part of our lives from God, we compromise that fellowship. And so God, for His glory and for our benefit, calls us to put it all on the line, to withhold nothing. And with that as our understanding, our foundation, that little quick trip through the sacrifices. Let's look again at what Paul says in verse 1 of Romans 12, and I'll ask you, which of those offerings is he talking about? Is he alluding to? 
He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. So which of the sacrifices is It's the whole burnt offering. He is alluding back to the whole burnt offering. He's alluding back to the offering of dedication of self to God. From the top of your head to the bottom of your toes, every bit of you. Now, some people make an issue of the word present and the verb tense, the aorist tense, and they say that it's talking about a once and for all, like a one-shot presentation of self to God, and then it's done. And you live the rest of your life based on that, that one act of commitment. Um, I don't think that's how it works. The aorist tense, the same verb tense, can be used just to see a particular action as a complete action, sort of in summary. It doesn't have to be a single point in time. See, God is mindful that we are but dust. He knows that we struggle to carry through with our commitments. But that doesn't change the assignment. The assignment we have from God is to be utterly, completely, 100% yielded to Him every moment of every day. From the moment that we first receive the gift of justification in His sight through faith in Christ. I heard many Christians talk about taking baby steps toward obedience, especially if they're involved in some sort of a syndrome of sin that they're having trouble putting behind them. They say, well, let's take baby steps. Beloved, if you belong to Christ, your calling is not to take baby steps. Your calling is to lay your life down for Christ today. You have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and the power of the Holy Spirit is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him above every authority on heaven and earth and every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. You've already been made holy, alive, acceptable to God. You already know more than enough about the abundant mercies of God to know that obedience to Him is the single most reasonable thing you will ever do. So get your body on that altar. I thought about using another B word, backslide. God calls us to lay our entire selves on His altar, to submit ourselves entirely and without reservation to His purposes all day, every day. Will you do that perfectly all day, every day? No. But that doesn't change the assignment. God knows that sanctification is a process that doesn't happen overnight. That's how He designed it. But you do not move forward in sanctification by compromise. You move forward by laying yourself on God's All right, so how do you move forward? That kind of brings us to verse 2. Paul says, be not conformed, but transformed. Now, I agree with uh, Douglas Moo. He says that the imperatives, do not be conformed, but be transformed, in this verse, reveal, open quote, the means by which we carry out the sweeping exhortation of verse 1, close quote. In other words, it is as we resist conformity with the world... 
And it is as we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds that we come to more and more completely, comprehensively present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Again, we do, we, we lay everything that we know about, everything that we have on the altar today. But over time, God shows us more and more. Now Paul combines two exhortations in this one verse. In verse two, do not be conformed, but be transformed. And, uh, the fact that he provides both a negative and a positive reminds me of, uh, of the book that Nate Bramson recommended a while back, Thomas Chalmers' little book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The thesis of that little book is that God never stops at the point of demanding that we set aside the things that are vain and ungodly. If He did, that would leave us longing for something to fill the void that comes about when we've set aside whatever our affections were formerly fixed upon, right? That's not how it works. When God demands that we lay aside one thing, He gives us something far superior with which to replace it. He doesn't merely call us to abandon the futile objects of our old affections. He graciously sets before us a new object, a far superior object that makes the old stuff pale by comparison. And that object is Christ. He says, do not, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. That word, this world, is this age. It means the world's way of thinking and acting. I could spend a bunch of time trying to tell you what it looks like not to be conformed to the world. I'm sure I could come up with a great sounding list of stuff that you're not supposed to do anymore. You know, movies not to watch, songs not to listen to, how many hours of TV puts you over the limit, what you shouldn't wear, what words you must not speak. But you know what? You'd be hard-pressed to find a passage in the New Testament that addresses this issue in those kinds of terms. The reality is that both the negative and the positive exhortations in the New Testament are overwhelmingly principle-driven. And the underlying principle that drives them is overwhelmingly love. Love for God and love for your neighbor. When you look at the passages in the New Testament that talk about what you're supposed to put off and set aside, it's things like immorality, malice, envy, gossip, anger, abusive speech, lying, slander, greed. The things that violate love. And what you're to put on, well, those passages are all about living out the principles of God's character that reflect the love He has shown to you in Jesus Christ. And the example is always Christ Himself. And so those lists include things like forgiveness, compassion, kindness, forbearance, gentleness, humility, patience, and above all, love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. You cannot put away the practices of the old man if you are not putting on the practices of the new man. 
In Galatians 5, Paul says, if you fix your attention on the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit, Romans 8, is life and peace. Okay. So, you have to be focused on the new man, not the old. The word for transformation here, the Greek word is transliterated into the English word metamorphosis. That's a pretty radical idea of transformation, metamorphosis, right? In 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 to 18, I don't have a slide, but Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. See, the transformation takes us from where we have been and it it conforms us, it moves us closer and closer to the image of God's own character. He's the one we're looking at. It's His image to which we are being conformed. And the verb here for transformed implies an ongoing action. It's not something you do once and then you're done. It's day by day. And it's in the passive voice, which means that the transformation happens to us as a result of something else. Okay, so what's the something else? Well, Paul tells us right here. The something else is that you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. If true dedication of self depends on the God's ongoing work of transformation to conform us to His character, and if that transformation depends on the renewing of our minds, then it seems to me that the key to the whole thing is the renewing of our minds. We must have our minds changed, transformed daily on an ongoing basis. Okay, so how do you get a renewed mind? (laughs) Where do you find real truth to replace the garbage? Where do you get real crystal clarity about how you are to live? There's only one place. And it's the Word of God. That is not a platitude, guys. That's life. And here's where I'll get specific about behaviors. Do you have time each day to catch a couple of TV shows? play a video game, just spend an hour or so on Facebook talking to myself there. That's where I got that picture of Craig. To pursue a hobby or to eat a few meals, but you don't have time on a regular basis to feed on the true bread, on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, none of those things I just listed are inherently evil. I don't know. And that's not what I'm saying. But if you're not feeding on the true bread, the Word of God, then your mind is not being renewed and you are not being transformed and you are not presenting yourselves to God for His purposes. You just think you are. Time in God's Word is not the only spiritual discipline that matters, but it is our necessary 
food. And it is infinitely more necessary than the food that we take into our mouths every day. How quickly we look forward to that and earnestly we look forward to that next physical meal. It is far more necessary to real life that we feed on the Word of God that sustains our spirit. That's how we get transformed. Alright, so what's the goal of our transformation? Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. The word prove means to put something to the test in order to approve it as legitimate. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul uses the same word when he talks about the day that will come when each man's work that he has built upon the foundation of Christ in the life of other men will be tested with fire, and that fire will test the quality of each man's work. The quality of each man's work. The good work will remain, the bad work will burn away. If Christ is the foundation, the man himself will be saved. But the test will show the quality. Paul's saying here in Romans 12 too that as our minds are renewed, we come to truly recognize the value, the quality of God's will and of God's way. We come to experience more and more fully the goodness of His will. And we come to see it as the essence of wisdom and of life itself. See, your assessment of God's way of doing things has no bearing whatsoever on when and whether you must submit to His will. It's the other way around. All sin and every sin has its root in man presuming to pass judgment on the will and the way of God. But God turns our concept of cause and effect upside down. He says, you don't obey me because I meet your approval. No. You come to appreciate the exceeding value of my will and my way when you have already submitted to it. Our unreserved approval of God's will is not the cause of our obedience. It is the fruit of our obedience. And we already have enough. We already know enough about the mercies of God to, to do that submitting. Now, I'm going to talk to the young people here, but not just to the young people for a moment. If you find yourself flirting with sexual immorality, you know what you're doing? You're exalting yourself over that which God has explicitly forbidden in His Word. It's not up for grabs. There's no question here. But let's say you're not personally engaged in sexual immorality, but you've decided that it's just too intolerant and it's too countercultural for Christians to point out that sins of sexual immorality that God has always called an abomination are still an abomination. A very prominent evangelical preacher came out with that kind of declaration just recently. Is that your position? Then you are exalting your reason over the Word of God. 
and you are standing against God. See, culture has changed in its view of such things. And you may have changed, but you know what hasn't changed? God hasn't changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Sin has always been sin. Righteousness has always been righteousness. And the way we know the difference between the two is God tells us. And that's the only way that we know the difference between the two. Isaiah chapter 5 verses 20 and 21 says, Woe! To those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Beloved, there is no wisdom except God's wisdom. The entire moral failure and death of mankind started because even though men had been given the knowledge of God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their own speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. Men became fools. That's in Romans 1, 21 and 22. Real conformity to the character of God happens in us when we stop imposing our way of thinking on God and we start submitting without reservation to what He has told us. And it really is that simple. That's where transformation starts and ends. Real life happens on God's terms, not ours. Heavenly Father, We ask that you would teach us to withhold nothing from you until all on the altar of sacrifice is laid. We look to you to transform us and to make us more like Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray.